Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and all major podcast providers. So if you can't catch the show live, you can download it or simply use our free podcast player, which is available on our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to connect with us, please post your question on our wall on Facebook or send me a tweet at June Stoyer on Twitter. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Austria's Finest Naturally, authentic pumpkin seeds and pumpkin seed oil from the Steiermark, available at organicuniverse.com. Listeners of the Organic View can receive $1 off their purchase by using the coupon code ORGVIEW. That's O-R-G-V-I-E-W. Also, don't forget to check out our contest section on our website to submit your information for our free monthly giveaways. For more information, please visit our website at www.theorganicview.com forward slash contests. On today's show, Tai Chi Master, Dallas Monk and best-selling author, Yan Rao, will talk about his new book, Yin. A love story. So I'd like to welcome to the show, Yun Rao. Good afternoon, Yun Rao, and welcome back to the show. It's been quite a while. Thank you, June. I'm so glad to be here with you again. The last time you were on the show, you talked about your best-selling book, Tai Chi, The Perfect Exercise, Finding Health, Happiness, Balance, and Strength. And now you have this new book, Yin, A Love Story. Can you please take a moment and explain to our listeners what prompted you to write this? Well, you know, in addition to being a, a monk, in addition to being a, a Taiji teacher and a, and a Taoist practitioner, I really am primarily, first and foremost, uh, a novelist. And while I did write uh, the Tai Chi book and one or two other nonfiction books in my uh, career, my primary uh, energetic and creative focus is on writing stories. And uh, so... This one is a story that brings together, it's a book that brings together both a delicious, I hope readers will think, delightful and engaging, uh, unusual, unique love story uh, with messages about our world and how we are in it and what we're doing to it and deep ideas upon which I hope people can chew. Can you please take a moment and talk about your journey? What led you to become a Taoist monk? So I, I was a I was a quester. All my life I've been someone a seeker maybe is, a, is an easier word. I, I've always been the kind of person that didn't really buy everything he was told. Um, was suspicious of motives and eager for a deeper truth, was aware that, uh, you know, we're looking at the surface of the pond and there's a lot more underneath. Um, and, and I was interested in diving in and seeing what was underneath and being in the underneath world. I was not a surface kind of a person. This gave me, you can imagine what a pain in the rear I was to my parents. And this gave me, an, uh, you know, a challenging journey through traditional education. I was always interested in the underlying ideas more than the memorizing of things. Uh, you know, I squished, I, I, I disciplined and squelched my impulses and my true nature well enough to go to a flurry of Ivy League schools, but I'm afraid that, you know, anytime you repress your true self, you don't get anywhere, really. So, uh, you know, my journey with looking to the East for wisdom that I wasn't getting in the Judeo-Christian model 
um, you know, began pretty early. I was probably 12 years old when I started reading Zen classics and Taoist classics. And, you know, I'm, I'm not entirely sure all these years later as, a, as an ordained Taoist priest that I even understand a lot of this stuff now. Some of it is very deep and arcane and difficult. And I can be entirely certain that I didn't understand it as a 12-year-old boy or a 25-year-old boy or any of that. But, um, you know, I've persisted, as they say, on the path. And at some point in, the, you know, the last five years or so, the Chinese community around Taoism and around publishing and around media recognized that I was bringing in a, in a, in a relentless fashion traditional Chinese culture and philosophy to the West in my television show, our national public television show, which was well uh, distributed to, uh, you know, 60 million households. Um, and uh, in, you know, 13 previous books, many of which were about this, these ideas. So, you know, there was, there was a getting together of, um, of the abbot of a big monastery in Canton in Guangzhou uh, called the Pure Yang Monastery and my martial arts master, who is a very devoted Taoist himself, a wonderful teacher. And these two gentlemen sort of conspired to recognize my life's path in this way, in an official capacity with a government chop and a certificate of my devotion and my achievements and whatnot in this area. I guess I, I don't really want to say my achievements. Let's just say my love for it. Um, I don't know what achievements there are, but but anyway, my attention to the path. So, uh, you know, they, they gave me this this Taoist name, and, and I think it's, it's a wonderful name. When they first gave it to me, Yunro means soft cloud. And my male ego was momentarily nonplussed. I was expecting something like titanium spear or dragon sword or crocodile will. <laughs> and I was a bit taken aback by soft cloud, but then they hastened upon seeing me look on my face, no doubt, to um, to explain to me that a cloud is a wonderful Taoist symbol because it goes with the flow of air currents and and it's light and has no no ego or plan of its own. It goes with the way things unfold. It floats across the sky. But then, of course, it also has the power to make hail and thunder and lightning. And so it's powerful, but it's also very, very soft and yielding. And when I understood it as a Taoist symbol, I love the name very much now. Um, and, and I like using it as a symbol of my devotion to my path, but also, quite frankly, as a symbol to my devotion to my teachers, which is something that is a pretty Chinese thing, that kind of apprenticeship and um, discipleship is not really an American cultural feature, but it means a lot to me. Yin, a love story, is very deep and thought-provoking. Were there any particular events or perhaps an individual that inspired you to write the book? In 1992, I was seized by this desire, 
which arose, I would say, inexorably from my long-term, lifelong love of turtles and other reptiles and animals in general. I, I, I was seized by this impulse to create a character who was a sentient giant tortoise. So, you know, in the in the vein and the tradition of Ishmael and Watership Down and Jonathan Livingston Seagulls, you know, Charlotte's Web, Animal Farm, and many other great classic Life of Pi much later, although I didn't have a great opinion of that book, but but certainly sort of in the same vein. I I, I felt that imbuing such an enduring and long-suffering animal as a giant tortoise. And earlier, before you started the interview, you mentioned to me that there are some passages in the opening sections of the book that were rough to read because they dealt with the way tortoises were treated on the Galapagos Islands in the early part of the history of whaling and how whaling ships would stop to collect those animals for food. Um, somehow, to me, the perseverance of the turtle, the fearlessness of the turtle, which is a strange word to use in connection with, with the turtle because, you know, you think of the turtle as carrying its home on its back and is always safe, but, you know, behold the turtle who makes progress only when it sticks its neck out. There's something profound there. Um, I don't know. I, I got this idea that I wanted to make a giant tortoise character, and it wasn't my first pass at the book did not involve China at all. It was it was a bit different than it is now. And a very, very famous New York literary agent got hold of this book. And I was living in Los Angeles, and he called me, and he asked me if he could represent me on the strength of this book. And, you know, I was very honored by the request, the offer. Um, I recognized how lucky I was to have an agent like that offer to represent me. But I said, I hope you don't mind, but I, I can't put my career in the hands of someone who I haven't met. Um, could we do this when I come to New York? He said, no, I want to do it right now. I'll fly out to L.A. and meet you. And so that was the kind of enthusiasm there was around the first draft of this book. A very, very top-tier New York literary agent, by which I mean you know, top three or four in New York, flew to Los Angeles, signed me, and, and then he worked with me for a few months on the book, and he tried to get me to go in a direction that I didn't really connect with, and so he and I parted ways, but not before he took that early draft of this book, and he read aloud at the Iowa Writers' Conference from it as the best of new American fiction. And then the book lay fallow for almost 20 years while I wrote other books, and then I began to, I came back to it, and I always wanted to finish it, and always wanted to figure out what was missing from it, and of course, what was missing from it is what you earlier alluded to as being the the messages in it, the Taoist themes to it. So I juxtaposed this tortoise with Chinese philosophy, which is the work of my life. And, uh, and, and when I did that, the story came together. So, you know, I guess the, the inspiration characterologically for the book was really my lifelong love of turtles, believe it or not. Let's talk about traditional Chinese culture. For listeners who are not familiar with these traditions, could you share with the listeners who are the three great sages and of what importance do they have in the book, Yin, A Love Story? So first, let's define what traditional Chinese culture means. Any 
long-term student, any Sinologist, any, anybody who's looking at the throw of Chinese history recognizes something which most American people are only now beginning to vaguely, dimly understand, which is that for most of the last 5,000 years, traditional Chinese culture has been the dominant culture on the face of planet Earth. Not America, not England, not France, not Portugal, not the Dutch, but China. And it is only in the last 150 years or so that there has been a, a dip in the influence of Chinese culture worldwide in terms of economic and military and cultural might. And that dip is now becoming a rise. And this kind of cycle, Taoists like me see as entirely natural and predictable in the world. And it only makes sense that at some times the culture is more preeminent than it is at others. But in the case of China, this has been going on for many thousands of years. And we are now beginning to enter the era where China is going to dominate the world again. They're already doing it. So traditional Chinese culture is something a little different than what most people are aware of when they see China on the news or travel there now, because now it's sort of Chinese anti-culture, which is just like American anti-culture, uh, uh, empty and material and uh, frenzied and substanceless. But just like everything else in time, things come back to center and to balance. And in China, there is a renewed interest now, which is somewhat tied to their nationalism um, with returning to their roots and finding out the greatness of their, their history and so on. So there are three men who uh, form the sort of cornerstones of, of this long, long enduring culture in the world. One of them is the Buddha who taught us uh, about the nature of human experience and suffering in particular, who was sort of the psychologist of the group, taught us how to look inside and modify our behavior to elevate us. Another one was Confuze, Confucius, Kongze, uh, we call him Confucius, who was the architect of a social plan which is still active in China today regarding how people treat each other, how we, they characterize and perceive their relationships one with the other. He created archetypes for the relationship between friends, uh, family members, rulers and, and subjects and so on. And then the last uh, of those three sages that you mentioned was Lao Tzu. And in some ways, I have to say that Lao Tzu was kind of the Jesus of China. And you might think that that would be the Buddha, but not really. Um, and, and I say this because Lao Tzu was a mystic. He was a shaman. He popped his cork, as I like to say about people who become enlightened and see the world in a different way. And he responded to the rules and regulations that were being laid out by Confucius by suggesting that we break all those rules and instead devote ourselves to nature, become students of nature, lovers of nature, learn and follow natural ways. And I, and I connect him to Jesus. And again, I don't know whether, uh, I have no idea really whether Lao Tzu or Jesus were actual, whether there's any historicity to either of them, those characters. I don't know whether they actually existed or whether they're archetypes of 
amalgams of a couple of different people who lived teachers at the time. But, you know, the human brain is wired for story. And we love to hear stories that help us remember and integrate ideas. So in the case of Jesus, you know, he his message was a result of the draconian, very regimented rules and regulations of early Judaism. And in the case of Lao Tzu, he was reacting to uh, the rules and regulations of Confucianism. And both Jesus and Lao Tzu had this fresh way of looking at things. And although their, their ways were entirely different, socially and culturally speaking, they served a similar role. The main characters are very interesting, especially Wang Yi and Cheng Fu. I thought it reflected the vast differences in generations, especially the antiquated baby boomer generation who supported mass production, as opposed to new generations who are going back to a more nature-based approach. What is the lesson that you hope that they'll take with them by learning about the characters? So, you know, I'm smiling as you're asking me this question (laughs) because I'm always startled by... I mean, in a good way, surprised by what people see and read in my work. You know, this is just endemic to the process of writing a book, putting it out there in the world, having lived inside the world of the book for so long, and then being exposed to how other people are in that world you've created, what they see of the world, what they understand. It's one of the most thought-provoking and rewarding aspects of being a novelist, I think. Um, So one person who's very well-educated and interesting person, a friend of mine that I gave this book to, reported to me that she thought it was incredibly simple. And, And it seemed almost simplistic to her, like an adult fairy tale. And she wondered whether this super simple tone had been deliberate on my part. Um, Whereas you describe it as dense and full of symbols and messages, she saw it as a fairy tale that was very light reading. What I think about the characters and the structure of the plot is that in my teaching and speaking around the world over the decades I've been doing this, I've learned that the most effective way to get ideas across, like medicine, any medicine, is to make the medicine taste so delicious you don't know you're taking medicine. And you become, you, you, you drink the drink because it's sweet and tastes like blueberries, yum. And because <laughs> there may be some, some strong antibiotic or some strong painkiller or some strong antiviral agent in it, but you don't even know you drank strong medicine because it just tasted like dessert. And, and I tried to make this book um, be really uh, a, a compelling love story, a very un, unusual love story between a man and a turtle. And the turtle, of course, is, as is expressed in the book, the symbol of femininity and Mother Earth and Mother Nature. And, and in Taoist uh, religion, this is not a subtle symbol. There, there are turtles around um, almost all monasteries and temples, uh, Taoist monastery and temples in, in, in Asia, um, the turtle has long been a symbol of pure female, nurturing, natural earth energy. Um, 
it's not an arcane symbol to the Taoist. Of course, it's very obvious. Uh, so there are lots of environmental messages. There are lots of, you know, Taoism is sort of the first deep ecology. It's the first organized, educated system of looking at the world that categorizes things in the way that uh, Arnie Ness did when he created deep ecology, that the earth is an organism and that, you know, when we are out of balance on it, we are like a cancer, the human race, poisoning, killing, out-competing, um, physically destroying the circulatory systems and the skeletal systems and so on with our fracking and our rivers turned to mud and oceans destroyed and acidified and all that. You know, we are we are killing the host organism. So there is a lot of messages about balance, harmony, stewardship in our role with other living creatures as opposed to domination. Um, but these ideas are not my ideas. They're ideas that come from this multi-thousand-year-old Chinese philosophy, which is so painfully beautiful. One of the things that that I thought was interesting was in relation in the the relationship between Wang Yi and Cheng Fu. You have Wang Yi, who's a young man, who's a young shaman. He's the caretaker of the baby turtle, and he really looks to Long Ears as someone that he strives to be more like in his actions, even though he does have a responsibility towards Chang Fu. And Chang Fu, what I found to be interesting with his character is that even though he's completely disconnected with nature, you could even call him a rapist of the earth, the dream that he has about the slaughter that took place on the island earlier in the book, it's almost as if some subconsciously he knew he was wrong. And I thought that that's very typical for the Chinese culture because they pay so much attention to the dreams. And I just thought it was very interesting how you incorporated that element into what Chang Fu had done because it was almost as if even though he he slaughtered these animals without any thought. He just thought about his own needs, his own desires, if you will. It was his his subconscious that came back and almost reminded him of the imbalance that he left when he left the island. So, you know, these are... Chang Fu, I don't know if I would call him a major character. He is a character who persists through the first two-thirds of the book um, and does come back to haunt Yin in ways that I don't want to reveal now as a spoiler alert. Um, he's the ship's captain that takes this band of men across the ocean from China to the Galapagos and back to bring uh, the little tortoise back to the imperial court. Wang Yi is a, is a, is a bigger character um, but they're they're both. Maybe you could say that Chung Fu is a is a ruffian and a, a materialist, and Wang Yi is an idealist, a utopianist, uh, a 
a wistful, uh, increasingly wise through the course of the book as he grows up, um, adept and student of the great master, but also a very good friend to the tortoise, to Yin. And, and those two characters that you've identified who are not the major characters in the book, but they are characters that are that serve a purpose. Those those two characters are a clear representational juxtaposition of the material and the spiritual preoccupations of mankind, one and the other. And I, I find it interesting that you noticed that. Well, considering the work that I do, these two characters really, I don't know, I, I just noticed the complete difference between them and I also identified with Wang Yi as with his gentle disposition, with his compassion, with his concern, and just with his love of nature, his love of life, and his humility. First of all, it was difficult for me to write Wang Yi, especially towards the end of the book, the way I did, and to have things unfold for him as they did. I don't want to ruin that by revealing it, but it was hard for me because I was also attached to that character. Um, I thought he was charming. Uh, you know, so, sometimes in this process, you know, really one of the most wonderful things about the process of writing, and I wish I could say that this happens to me all the time with every book, with every character, but it doesn't. But but sometimes it happens. And when it does happen, it's most wonderful that that a character just becomes so much more than you had initially intended and leaps off the page and has conversations with you as the writer in your head. Um, and and it's, a, it's a very gratifying. There's a follow-up novel to Yin called Yang, predictably enough, uh, which comes out in April. And there's, um, there's, a, there's a character in that book which comes in very close to the end of the story. And he was, when I first conceived him, a device. He was he was really a minor character. He wasn't he didn't really even need a name. Um, he, he just had an identity as a, in the plot. And then somehow, after I'd written him, you know, he, he said to me, "Hey, listen, I want the girl." <laughs> and I said, "What?" He said, "Oh yes, I want the girl." I said, "You're a minor character at the end of the book. You're not getting a girl. There's a whole other story here." And and he said, "Well." I, I want her. And I said, well, I don't know how to do that. He said, well, wanting her is my job, and it's your job to figure out how to give her to me. And, you know, this sounds a bit hokey, but when you really get involved with a character, you you have those kinds of thoughts and imaginary conversations and exchanges with your characters. And, you know, Wang Yi, the apprentice shaman, is a, is a very deep character, even though there are more major characters in the book than him. Could you explain to our listeners the deeper symbolism of the name Yin and what it means in Chinese culture. In modern day culture, the word Yin, unattached to Taoist symbology, is um, is actually a crude word. It's not a word that would serve the book as a title for the Chinese version. Um, it, it, it's a it, it's a rude reference to uh, female anatomy. Um, inside the Taoist context, though, seen either with a bagua, with an eight trigrams drawing, or with a, a so-called yin-yang or taiji-tu, the Taoist circle with the black and white fish, each with a 
opposite color I. Um, in the context of Taoism, yin means a very different thing. It means female, mother, dark, moist, earthy, intuitive, quiet, knowing, valley, uh, night. People sometimes associate it with the word for moon, soft, slow, and so on. Sustaining, secret. Yin exists in contrast to yang, which is seen as the opposite of all those things. So namely, male, bright, loud, quick, burning, obvious, uh, overbearing, uh, and so on. So the real reason to call the book yin was out of service to the idea in Taoist philosophy, especially in the book written by the lead character in the novel Lao Tzu, the, the ancient sage with whom yin the turtle falls in love and vice versa. The, the meaning of yin in that context is that that message of that sage, which I find to be an incredibly powerful and relevant message these days, is that intuition is at least as important as cognition. That intuition and rational, logical, deliberate thought are two sides of the same coin. That your mind and your experience provide you cues and info and intel that many of us ignore and that the so-called gut feeling, the intuitive understanding is often of higher, not a lower function than the rational reasoning logical brain which is associated with yang. So in a way, this, to call the book yin is to say, hey, let's embrace the female side of our culture. Let's cohere our ideas of what it is to be fully awake and conscious to include both the rational intellectual, logical thinking that the human brain is so much vaunted for, and the emotional, intuitive, gut instinct knowing that is, in, in fact, the real source of so much of what we do and the decisions we make. I almost felt like Yin's journey and Yin's existence was one that both men and women could identify with to a certain degree because of her struggles through the transformation, through, I guess, self-identity. There were just so many different things that I felt people of either gender could relate to, plus the longing, the love, the fear. There's just so many different emotions. And also the fact that you jump forward in time, which I thought was quite clever. With Athens Lee, even though it's not a tremendous jump into the future, I thought that that was quite interesting. You go from the initial journey off of the island where she's, I guess, evolving. And I kind of think that as people age, as they go through different things in life, they often reflect to their past of where they've been, what they've been through, and where they're going. So first of all, I'm... I'm I'm delighted to hear that you think that it will appeal equally to men and women, boys and girls. I feel like when you put a love story as a subtitle, 
you do somewhat pre-select to a female uh, readership. And the decision to do that was based partly on marketing, as most title decisions are, but also on the fact that, you know, the most important thing about the book really is that it is a love story. And it's a love story on not just this fantastical level between a man and a, and, and a turtle whom the man tries to transform into his soulmate or a woman, but also a love story, a love teeing to... Uh, I think it's a love of life, don't you? Yes, and, and, but of life in, a, in the sense of... Okay, so we could say love of life as in joie de vivre, as in, as in the way we, we live our own lives and love being alive. Or we could say love of life with a capital L. And, and, you know, to me, it's always been interesting to note that in a universe where everything is tending in the direction of maximum entropy, it's falling apart, you, you abandon a house, and a hundred years later you go back, and it is not cleaner and more organized than it was when you left it. Rather, you know, there's dust everywhere, the, the roof has failed, the floors are buckling, the furniture is broken, and so on. And, and rats and squirrels and cockroaches and everything have taken it over. Uh, you know, the, the universe tends towards maximum disorder. And yet somehow, in this vast universal river of decay, which quantifies and describes our known universe since the moment of the instant of the Big Bang, there is this little eddy, this little microcurrent running in the opposite direction from the way the rest of the river runs. And that little tiny current is life. And life, whether it is ubiquitous in the universe and proves to be on planets peppered as plentifully as, as, as popcorn in a movie theater, or whether it turns out to be vanishingly rare, life is a precious and amazing thing because rather than falling apart, life becomes more organized, more complex, it swims against the current. It's a stupendous phenomenon. It's, it's arguably the most amazing thing, process, entity um, that goes on in the known universe. So, you know, there, there is a lot of celebration of that unlikely fact in the book. I'm glad you see it. I think my perspective is going to be very different because of the fact that I do so much work with the environment, with nature, with animals, and the things that I'm going to pay attention to and the things that I truly valued, especially all the analogies and all the symbolism that you put in this book were tremendous. And I have to tell you, I, I kind of feel like I could probably take millions of quotes out of this book and bombard social media with them because they were just so beautifully and eloquently stated. And for anybody who really loves the environment, that's why I said it doesn't matter if you're male or female, you can really appreciate Yin's journey, Yin's transformation, and her views and what she represents. If you take a deeper look, I think too often society just wants everything spoon-fed to them. They want something that's almost immediate gratification. They don't want to take time to really scratch below the surface and take a more closer look at what's really out there. 
and there's so many different things in life. And just because something is bad or something isn't perfect doesn't mean that it hasn't served its purpose. And just as you said before, when you look back at an old house or dwelling, what have you, a place where you've spent some time, and then you go back and you see it wasn't as perfect as you thought it was in your head, it doesn't mean that that's a bad thing. It's just things change. We get older, we age, but we get better, or at least I hope that we do. And I think there are so many messages here. I would highly encourage our audience today, when you read this book, really take some time to read it. Don't just zip through it. Actually sit, whether it's under a tree or sit out in nature if you can, whether it's in a park, your backyard, what have you, and enjoy each of the chapters. There's just so much there and so many lessons to learn. Even if it's just one tiny paragraph in any of the chapters, there's so much to learn and so much to digest, process, and benefit from. So I just loved it. I just thought that your ability to create and educate people so cryptically and carefully was just really brilliant. Once again, there's just so much in this book, and I was surprised. I, I never expected any of that. It, it's something that's going to stay with me. There's so many lessons that I can refer back to. I really enjoyed it. I, I'm looking forward to the next installment. You're making a bold monk blush. My goodness. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for all those kind words. You're making a bold monk blush. So for, turn the camera off so you couldn't see that. <laughs> well, you know, I, I appreciate that you picked all, all that up. You know, I never know, I really never know what people are going to see, what they're going to connect to. As far as, you know, getting better as we get older, I agree. Just this morning I gave a Tai Chi lesson to a senior student, and we did a little bit of stretching before the class, and he noticed that I was stretching my leg way up for a high kick, which we don't really do in Tai Chi, but he noticed and he said, boy, you know, I don't think I've ever seen you stretch that high or go down in a split that low. And What's going on with all that? You know, were you trying to send me a message? And and I, I had, of course, not tried to send him any message. I was just stretching. And that's how much I needed to stretch to get a stretch. And I said that to him and he goes, well, so then the message I'm going to take is I got better to look forward to the older I get. And I said, bring it on, baby. That's the message. That's the message indeed. I'm glad you got that one. So there are a lot of messages in Yin, and I hope that they are also delicious messages. Yadara, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. Could you share with our listeners your website and where they can pick up a copy of the book? Of course. Um, the book is available in on, uh, all kinds of online uh, vendors. Tambuli Media, the publisher, sells it directly. I can get it on Amazon and a zillion other uh, book sources. So just uh, you can go to Amazon or you can just Google the book. And it's yin, Y-I-N, dash, a love story. And my website is monk, M-O-N-K, Yunro, which is my name, Y-U-N-R-O-U, monkyunro.com. But if you can't remember that or you can't find it, just look up Taoist Monk, uh, on uh, Google, and you'll find me pretty close to the top there. Thank you. And once again, thank you so much for being on the show today. It's It's been a pleasure. And I sincerely look forward to the second installment in this story. 
Thank you. Well, the second installment is not about the same characters, but you will understand when you read it that it is in some ways connected. Nevertheless, I really am looking forward to this, so I sincerely hope that you'll make some time and come back on the show. I'll be delighted to do so. Thank you for asking. You're very welcome. And folks, please check out the companion article which will accompany this interview, which will be available on theorganicview.com, along with the information for Yanro's website, as well as where you could purchase the book and some of his other work. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon, folks.